Lord, buddy. Good to see you. Sounded great while you were singing. I'm happy you came to church. And a hello out to my friends out in Sydney as well. I love what you guys are doing there, everybody watching online. Hey, we are going to conclude our series in the book of 2 Timothy, and um, I've really enjoyed it. It's amazing how you read a book, you think you're familiar with it, but it, it, because of the nature of what this book is, uh, I love the fact that there's continual growth and there's, wow, how come I never saw that before? Or you're challenged in a new way. That might be in large part due to what we read a couple weeks ago where God, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the word does. So we're going to wrap this up and then next week we're going to start a series called Caged. And we're going to look at several people from the Older Testament. That's all the books written before Jesus who found themselves um, captive to an emotion, to a passion, and how they found freedom. We'll look at people like Elijah and Samson, some of these big characters from the Old Testament. So as we begin in the the last chapter here, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, it is um, a a varied chapter where this this is Paul's final letter that he writes in the New Testament. And he is very close to facing the emperor Nero and being executed. And so in the last chapter, we're going to see his humanity. He's going to give a unique charge once again to Timothy, the recipient of this letter, the pastor of the church in Ephesus and his spiritual son. And then he's also going to give, really, I don't know what else to call it, but his own eulogy. He's going to He's going to say, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to summarize my life for you right here. So to me, it's very beautiful. One of these passages deeply motivates you, me. I'll talk about that when we get there. So we're going to read a section, and then we'll come back to it. Just before we read it, though, the setting, I think it's important for us to remember, uh, we can never identify exactly where this was, but I would like to show you a picture of what church tradition very early on says uh, Paul's, Paul's uh, prison was like. This is in Rome. And he'd been here once. He had already had a pretrial experience. So this is where we believe that Paul was imprisoned. It's underneath the ground. Above it is a, uh, a floor. And it's the Roman garrison uh, where the Roman guards would stay. And so you would hear them walking on these stones above you. Made for a pretty secure prison because you couldn't get out. There's uh, a little shaft of natural light that comes in. Other than that, it is just very, very bare bones. In the wintertime, it's cold and it's dreary. Um, It's wet inside. It was not weatherproof in any way. And the next picture, this is, we believe, the very place where Paul was lowered in. How you got in and out of these cells, these cells were built and then the buildings were built around them. And so no one ever escaped because there's a grate here now so that people don't fall in. But you were lowered in. And it was far too high to ever reach uh, and climb your way out. And so this is probably the very hole through which Paul was lowered. Um, Any visitor that wanted to come had to be lowered through that hole as well. Food, uh, water. And in Roman times, very different than our form of incarceration, the prisoner was absolutely in charge of uh, providing himself with his needs. So the prison did not feed you. The prison did not clothe you. You were responsible for having people that cared about you bring you food, 
bring you clothing, bring you bedding, whatever it was. And so this is where Paul spends, some people would say 18 months, maybe even 22 months. So now here we are at the end of his life, and he's going to be reflecting from about 36 AD when he had his encounter with Jesus Christ, his life changes all the way up to this point, somewhere either 67 or 66 AD. So he's reflecting over these 30 years of ministry, of planning churches, of like unbelievable adventure, um, challenges, uh, beautiful things have happened, but this is him reflecting back over that. Let's read the first section of 2 Timothy chapter 4 together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, this is going to be a charge to Timothy, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's a beautiful word picture we'll talk about in a moment. But these false teachers will gather people around them. They'll be at the epicenter. They'll create a truth that they selectively know. In order to find out the truth, you have to come to them. It's what itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. This has been an ongoing theme through the book. Timothy, you can't be surprised when life doesn't go your way. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. That's the first section, this very, very specific charge to Timothy who is in Ephesus. Let's talk just for a moment about this charge. Uh, the first part is this. Timothy, if there's one final thing I can tell you is this. Preach the word. The word in Greek is graphe. It's the truth. It's the message of Jesus. Timothy, I don't want you to preach your opinions. I don't want you to even preach all about morals. I don't want you to preach your political views. Timothy, here's the one thing above all else that is important for you is to continue to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ brought. The message that is radically different than any prophet, than any messenger has ever brought, that human beings can be reunited with God and it has nothing to do with your behavior. It has nothing to do with your morality. It is a gift of God that God, through Jesus, died in your place. He was resurrected, and you can live again. Timothy, be a communicator of that message. And even though the message is so revolutionary, so mind-blowing, so exceptional, I think it's still a great temptation for everybody who follows Jesus, wherever you're at in your own journey, maybe you're just uh, investigating, you're trying to figure out what you believe, you're spiritually unresolved, or maybe you've been walking with him for years. Here's one of the greatest challenges, is that we forget what the message is all about. And we forget to keep that at the core of what we do, because religion will always add layers Loud layers of, well, but we should do this and we shouldn't do that. And here's all our behavior and here's what we should align ourselves with. And Paul over and over throughout this book is saying, Timothy, don't ever forget the message. Don't ever stop proclaiming it. 
Don't, hey, listen, if it gets repetitive in this church, that's a really good sign. As long as it's the message of Jesus, all right? Because it is the message that you and I need to hear over and over. It's what liberates humanity. It's what gives us a second chance. It's what draws us to go fall on our knees to worship him. He says, preach the word. He, he just says a few things. He says, one, be prepared in season and out of season. Timothy, when everyone, whenever anyone has a question, you have to be ready to proclaim the message. Not just when you feel like it, not when it's convenient. Uh, it, it's, it's the same phrase that you would use to have your bag packed and ready to go. Right? So uh, Chris just mentioned that he and his wife had a little girl. Well, this is Chris' Chris's first time to walk through all this. I bet you anything that guy had the little bag ready by his bed six weeks before it was time, right? Like, we're ready, we're ready. That's what he's saying. You just have it packed. Know what you're going to say. Know the message of Jesus. You can be ready in season and out of season, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, that you're always ready to preach this message. And then he goes back to a word he used in the previous chapter, two of them actually. He says, I want you to correct and rebuke. Because you see, as people are going to teach divergent things, like auxiliary things about Jesus that aren't essential or maybe are even untrue, correct them and rebuke them and bring it back to the message of who Jesus is, what he has done, who we are in him now. Correct and rebuke. And then he says, I, as you preach, I want you to encourage. I want you to encourage people. Remember, we, we've identified that Timothy had a, a tendency to become personally discouraged. He says, one of the things that it's important to do is just to encourage people with great patience and careful instruction. To pour courage into someone. And you don't just do it once. Because we're human, because we're flawed, because we tend towards discouragement, Paul says regularly with patience and careful instruction, encourage the believers. This passage is um, very dear to me. So 20-some years ago when I started teaching, I'll tell you what, when you start teaching the Bible, you just feel so desperately inadequate. And after like your 10th sermon, you just decide, I've preached everything there is to preach. There's nothing left. And you look at the next 40 years and you're like, what am I going to do? That's everything I know about the Bible in 10 sermons. It's totally complete. I, I came across this scripture and I memorized it. And um, I worked it out from a different translation in, in, in the Greek. And minutes ago, standing right there, I, I repeated it. I don't know how many hundreds or maybe thousands of times since I memorized the scripture. Before I go up and teach, I, I repeat this scripture to myself. Because I, I know how easy it is to drift. I, I know that there's something in my heart that wants to say things that might be gratifying to the listeners. I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. Christ himself is the judge with the final say over everyone, both living and dead. So proclaim the message with intensity. Challenge, urge, and warn your people, don't ever quit. Just keep it simple. And I hope if the Lord lets me keep doing this for another 20 or 30 years, that every time before I speak, I remember Paul's words. Be all about the message. The message of Jesus, not what you want to say. Paul says, Timothy, here's, here's part of the challenge is that the time will come. There's a time coming, and it's actually already there in Ephesus, but it, it'll always be there in the church 
where people won't put up with sound doctrine, where they won't want the message of Jesus, don't want something else. And he, he uses these, this, this uh, imagery. He says, they're itching ears, all right? Meaning they want to hear something, and it's not the message of Jesus. They want to hear something a little bit more profound or something a little bit more that includes them in the midst of the process of salvation. And he says, these, their itching ears will want you. They'll ask you to say things that aren't a part of the message. I says, Timothy, you just, you can't go there. You can't focus on your personal desires or what your listeners want to hear. That's not what they need to hear. The question is not, what do I want to believe? The question is, what is actually true? I think this is a huge challenge in our world today. There are many things that, um, well, what we call it today, we call it relativism, right? Is that there's different truths for you, different truths for me, and I hold these convictions, and if you hold different convictions, boy, I celebrate you. This is, I, I understand um, we're not called to uh, uniformity, we're called to unity, but the challenge is this, is that sometimes we want the message to be different than it actually is. And Paul says, Timothy, the truth has to be based on something. Not on your personal desires for what is true. And there are major, you can think of them right now, there are major cultural issues that we're having to deal with that are not publicly, culturally acceptable, but things that the Bible holds dear. And the words to Paul are this, Timothy, I know you itch, that your, ear, your ears itch, they want to hear something else, but... Stay on the message. Truth has to be based on something. It can't be based on public opinion or what's popular during, the, during that time. In fact, this is, um, these false teachers, they'll come and they'll gather people around them. So here's the imagery. is Somebody comes up with a new stimulating twist on the message of Jesus. And who's in the center of the, of the truth? It's them. They found it. And so they gather people around them. In fact, in the first century, in, in Ephesus, which was this very, very sophisticated place, it had deep Greek origins, it had multiple schools of philosophy and learning, there were people known as sophists, uh, S-O-P-H-I-S-T-S, and it's the word for wisdom, and so they were known as the wise ones. They were the highly educated, doctoral degree type people, and this is, this is not a joke. You could hire a sophist. To, if you had a new philosophy on life or a new philosophy on God or what, you, what religion really should be, you could pay a sophist and he would come along and create an academic argument to support what you wanted to believe. Say, so, hey, you know what? I, I don't think that that should be labeled as a violation of morals or sin or whatever. You know what? I'm going to bring in a sophist. I'll pay him and he will create a system of belief that agrees with me. That literally was done in the first century in Ephesus. You hired someone to support what you wanted to believe, to create a theology or a philosophy or an argument to justify what you were doing. I know we look at that and we think, well, that's crazy. But I think part of what we're tempted to do today isn't a whole lot different than that. So he says, the time will come. But then finally he says, but Timothy, as for you. Here's some great words. 
uh, if you're in school, if you're in business, if you work at the hospital, if you're a teacher, whatever it is. But as for you, he says this, keep your head in all situations. Just this great, this great word of just don't let your emotions control you. Keep your head in all situations. You know, some years ago, I, I have been uh, meeting with a counselor for probably, I don't know, it's probably five months. And this counselor said, um, Nate, in all this time I've been talking to you, you have only identified two emotions. And the one is happy and the other one is sad. And he said, did you know that there's quite a few more emotions out there? And I said, no, those are the only two I feel. And he said, no, you feel others. You just don't know how to express them. Um, I needed to learn to deal with emotions. I didn't really have, I know all the ladies are like, typical guy. Yep. I have two emotions. I've since identified more. But what Paul's saying, you can't be ruled by all of these emotions. Keep your head. Keep your head in all situations. He says, do the work of an evangelist. I love this. Because here's the tendency. This has always been the tendency for the church. This is a big challenge for people who serve in the church. We get so involved in religion, we forget to spread the message of Jesus. Timothy, don't forget that in Ephesus there are people that are so confused and they're worshiping the goddess Artemis and they have no idea that Jesus died for them and they have no idea how profound and deep the love of God is. Timothy, don't ever forget people who are far from God because the church can do that. We get very comfortable and, oh, it's easier to deal with each other and we get busy. Paul says, Keep doing the work of evangelists and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So that first section right there is, is Paul's charge to Timothy. Now let's read the, section, the second section. And this is really Paul's eulogy. It's just a short few verses, but it is loaded. Just imagine Paul in that prison we saw. There's a, share, a shaft of light coming through the hole that they lowered him into. And he is thinking about these years, 36 AD to 60, 68 AD. And he's looking over his shoulder and he's, he's going to review his life for us. I mean, it is beautiful. I know my dad just went to do a memorial service today, and it, we do a lot of those around here. Listen to these words. This is what Paul says about his own life. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now... There is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul is, he's going to bring in some very, very powerful imagery. And I think if we remember where he's at, he's in Rome. He's in the midst of a group of Roman soldiers. They're marching, walking over his head constantly. Um, Nero is in power of the Roman Empire. And he's going to provide these pictures for Timothy and for the church in Ephesus. He, he says this in his, his eulogy. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. So in the book of Numbers, in the Old Testament, chapter 15, um, as worship is set up for how the people will worship God, they'll make sacrifices. And one of the sacrifices is you would take the finest wine 
And everybody knows the process of wine. It takes fermenting. It takes the right grapes, the right storage. And as they're worshiping God, they would take a jar of the best wine available and they would literally just pour it out over the altar. There's a fire going and it would just evaporate. No one would ever taste it or touch it. it this, is, this is for God, our best. We empty it out. And Paul says, Timothy, I haven't lived my life trying to die with a full container. You know, when, when I think about the future and think about retirement, I mean, here's the first thing I think. I, I want to make sure we have enough, right? It's reasonable. Paul says, I, I didn't live my life trying to make sure that when I died, I had enough. I lived my life being a drink offering before God. Just emptied out. I gave him everything. I gave him the best years of my life, Timothy. I gave him my academic abilities, my leadership abilities. I gave him my career. I, I gave him everything. And Paul says, I feel pretty good about where I'm at because there's nothing left. I've just given it all as an offering to God. Then he says, I fought the good fight. I fought the good fight. Uh, this is really clear imagery. When a Roman soldier would retire, when it was time for them to move on, they'd have a ceremony where they would take, most of us could imagine even what a Roman soldier would wear. They'd take their shield, they'd take their sword, they'd take their spear, and they would lay it down in front of their commanding officer. They're surrendering their weapons and say, I fought the good fight. My weapons are yours. I never ran in battle. I was a faithful soldier. But my time is done. Paul says, it was a fight. But I never ran. And I'm ready to surrender my sword and I'm ready to surrender my shield. Then he says, I have finished the race. I've finished the race. The race is easy to start, much more difficult to finish, right? Anybody who's ever raced anything, it's easy to start, difficult to finish. Um, referencing most likely the marathon, uh, you know, it was this great Greek race that came about during the Battle of Marathon where uh, the Greeks win and, and uh, a man runs all the way back through the night, some close to 26 miles, and declares we have won and is so exhausted that he dies. And so they turn that into the marathon, this ongoing run where it seems like it's likely that I would die if I ran a marathon. Um, he says, I ran the race the right way. So in, in the first century, the day before the Olympic Games began, you came around the uh, leaders of the Games, all the athletes would gather together, and you had to tell them that you had done these two things. One is you had to have trained for a minimum of 10 months. They felt like nobody should compete in the games unless you had uh, trained for 10 months. And so the directors of the games have you trained for 10 months, and they would say yes. And then the second one was this, will you compete by the rules? We need your word. There won't be any shortcuts. And everybody had to answer yes. And if you violated the rules after that point because you had violated your word, you were disqualified. And it's the exact same phrase here. Paul's saying this, I trained and I didn't cut corners. I'm running all the way to the finish line. 
I'm running all the way to my trial before Nero. And just because I'm in prison doesn't mean that the race isn't going. And I am stretching myself forward to that finish line. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. Then the next part is this. He says, the time for my departure has come. It's an interesting phrase that Timothy automatically would have known what this word meant. It, it was used in two ways in the first century. Um, one would be when there was an animal that had been working and was tied up. When you took the yoke or the saddle off of the animal and you let it go, they were free. This is the exact same word. He says, now I'm, I'm free to go. The word was also used when you were in a ship and you moored it. You came to dock and you tied it off. And then when you untied it, this is the word that Paul's using, it was able to sail away. And Paul says, it's time for me to depart. I love, this is his perspective on death. I'm sailing into a new future. I've been docked here on planet Earth for a little while. Or I've I've been like an animal working, but now I'm being set free. He, He says, this is time for my departure. It's time for me to enter the next journey that's ahead of me. It's time for me to leave the physical life and to see what God has for me in the future. And he says, and finally, that God will give me a crown of righteousness. It's another reference to the Olympics. It's the winner always took a, had a laurel wreath and it was placed upon their head. And when you won the Olympics and you had the laurel wreath on your head, it changed your life because you no longer paid any taxes anywhere ever again. How many people would like that? Um, it made you famous. You were a hero. You typically were very wealthy. But the problem is, is your crown is made of laurel. It faded away and it crumbled and it was done. Pauses. What's waiting for me on the other side of my trial with Nero is a crown of righteousness that doesn't fade away. He gets into that a little bit more in other passages he writes. But it's, I finished the race and God's going to say, well done. Well done. You made it. The last section after Paul eulogizes his own life, um, it carries us into a little bit more of a personal look at Paul than we probably have anywhere else in any of the Bible. It's going to show us the humanity of Paul. Let's read this together. Do your best to come to me quickly. Now, imagine him in that very dungeon that we looked at, okay, and it's cold, okay. He says, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, that's a male Greek name, because he loved this world, has deserted me, and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is here with me. I always feel bad for Luke when I read that. He's a great guy. I mean, I got wrote the book of Luke, Acts, and he's like, all I got is Luke. Come on, give him a break. <laughs> Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Uh, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker, this is a man who lives in Ephesus, did great, a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Paul had a pretrial. Um, 
before they allow him to face Nero, they had to see, is this a legitimate concern? And at his first trial, nobody was there. And this is the way that the Roman court trials worked, is you had character witnesses who stood by your side and said, no, 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 he's a good man. And he said, nobody came. Um, my first trial was just me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Beautiful phrase for any of us who feel lonely, been abandoned physically. The Lord stands by your side. And the Lord gives us strength. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting as he uh, says that. He, he knows he's going to die, but he still says, I'm going to be rescued. Um, he's not trying to escape the pain. And finally, greet Priscilla and Aquila. That's a husband and wife. And the household of Onesiphorus. Um, we read about him in the book of Philemon. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eulubius greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. These are people here in Rome that were part of the Christian church. Grace be to you. Such a vulnerable thing for Paul to write, knowing that this letter would be read to the church as a whole, and here we are reading it some 2,000 years later. Let's talk for just a moment about the humanity of Paul. Paul had relational needs. It's interesting to me. And men, this might be particularly important for you. Uh, Paul's a guy who faced uh, multiple execution attempts. He's a guy who was fiercely independent, incredibly intelligent, and he still had relational needs. So guess what? You do too, all right? You do too. And some of us, the women, we need to hear that as well. So here's a little bit about his relationships. He, he, he needed a team for support. Here he is at the end of his life, and he needs some people. He mentions a few things. He mentions the people he loves. He says, boy, all these people, they've been with me, and I miss them. Say hi to Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, these are great people. Um, they've been important. They've traveled with me. And then he mentions people who have heard him. People who have heard him. I think sometimes that's really hard for us to talk about. That we've been hurt by certain people. And he mentions a couple people in particular. He mentions Demas. Uh, he says, Demas, he left because he loved the world and deserted me. Here's Paul, just raw. Here's a guy, probably much like Timothy, he had invested in, taught, was hoping to hand his ministry off to. But when it came down to it, um, Demas probably didn't want to go to that trial because he didn't want to be associated with Paul. And Paul says, what he, he loved the world more than he loved God, and he left. Because there was something, a draw in his heart for recognition and safety that was greater than his love for the Lord. And then he says, I was hurt because no one came to my defense. Nobody. Nobody said, well, excuse me, I know Paul. I've known him for a long time. Hey, you have any idea what this man has done? He's, he's not a usurper of the Roman Empire. In fact, this is who he is. And culturally, he's changed things all over the place. Nobody, nobody. But he says, 
I pray the Lord doesn't hold it against them. Maybe for some of us in the room, you know what it's like to be absolutely abandoned. And maybe we need to have the heart of Paul where we go, yeah, I acknowledge that really hurt. But I pray the Lord doesn't hold that against them. I'm not going to hold it against them either. I understand they were afraid. Interestingly, when he talks about people he's hurt, he says, bring Mark. Bring Mark. Now, in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, um, there's a big hubbub between a guy named Barnabas and Paul over this young man named John Mark, or Mark. And Paul found him uh, just to be absolutely lacking, found him to be unfaithful, unfit for ministry. And so Paul says, if we go, we're not taking Mark. Because Mark's not making the cut. And Barnabas comes along and argues with Paul. He goes, no, 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 I really believe in this guy. So Paul and Barnabas actually split ways over this guy named Mark. And Paul had absolutely rejected him. Now I love it that later in his life, he says, hey, bring me Mark. Remember the guy I couldn't stand in Acts chapter 13? Bring him to me. I was wrong about him. He's helpful to me in ministry. I want to see him one more time before I die. Paul had had a severed relationship. He had misjudged someone. Paul says, I, I want to see him one more time. And then there's people who had opposed Paul. I, I don't think it's unforgiveness. Sometimes we don't know, what does that mean when I'm, I'm hurt? Um, does it mean if I still am cautious of that person? Does that mean I haven't forgiven them? I don't think so. Paul says, hey, you know what? He doesn't say, hey, Timothy, by the way, Alexander, you need to get a hit out on that guy. No, he just says, you know, he's not like trying to kill Alexander, but he goes, hey, Timothy, by the way, that guy Alexander, the metal worker, he did us great harm. He really opposed the message. You need to watch out for him. Like, keep your eyes open for him. Be wise. I'm not asking you to, like, go out and attack him, but you need, just need to be cautious out there. And then he had physical needs. He says, could you bring me my cloak? <laughs> Remember, a prisoner was responsible for their own needs. He says, boy, winter's coming. That coat, I love to have that thing because it's cold. And they don't care I'm cold. Would you bring a cloak? And then his intellectual needs. He said, would you bring me the scrolls and the parchments? Probably uh, something to write on, but also the Old Testament scrolls in Hebrew that he could read those. He just said, you know, I'm, I'm here in prison. I'd love to keep writing letters, and I'd love to keep growing intellectually. I'd love to keep studying spiritually. I, I'd love to learn more about who God is. It's a beautiful picture of who Paul was as a human being. Now, how do we close this out? You know, one thing is... This whole idea of Paul's legacy. So much of the New Testament is written by him or about him. And the things that he can say about his life, he doesn't list, he doesn't say, and by the way, uh, Timothy, I planted somewhere around 87 churches and I accomplished, what does he say? Timothy, the only goal I had was to pour my life out as an offering to God. Timothy, I just wanted to finish the race. I'm ready to lay down my arms. I played by the rules. I didn't make shortcuts. I'm ready to untie this boat and sail into eternity. I remember when I was in sixth grade. I don't know why I remember this, but our teacher had us, like they gave us an old mimeograph. Remember that? Four copy machines, always blue. And it was a tombstone. 
And the teacher said, we want you to write, she used the word like epitaph or eulogy. And I'm like, what are, I don't even know what that is. She said, imagine that's your tombstone. What do you want it to say? That was easy. Amazing career in the NFL. One of the strongest, you know, like, what does a sixth grader know? Like, right? Save many people from fires. You know, like. But I think it's a good question. Maybe not for a sixth grader. When it's all over, what was my life like? Paul doesn't mention his net worth. <laughs> you notice that? He says, I, I please God. That's all I tried to do. He says, in view of his appearing. Um, you know, a few years back, my youngest son, he was supposed to clean his room. We were downstairs. And... Uh, I don't know why. You know how kids get distracted. And I could literally hear, like, he started cleaning and then footsteps stop. And you know he's doing, playing Legos or something. I'd be like, hey, hey, are you cleaning your room? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So I forgot. And then you hear him walking around cleaning stuff. And then, you know, you give it three minutes and the footsteps stop. <laughs> so the next time I said, are you cleaning your room? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I said, because I'm coming up there. He started walking fast, getting it done, right? Because he knew dad's coming up there. Paul, Paul challenges us a little bit. He says, in view of his appearing, he's coming back. How are you going to live your life? He doesn't say how it was perfect. He just says, I lived it for him. And, and finally, verse 17, it just as I've read it this week, it has just it's moved me. Verse 17, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. Paul said this, this is, this is how I live my life. I wanted everybody possible to know who Jesus is, what he came to do. And the Gentiles, meaning all those people who were non-Jewish, those people who were considered to be excluded from God's love, so this is how I live my life, just as a conduit for this message. Everywhere I went, everybody I met, my heart is that they would know the message of Jesus Christ. And I wonder one day when it's our time to untie the ship and sail away. I'd love to be able to say I was a conduit for the message of Jesus. People heard it and they saw it in the way that I lived. Would you pray with me? Thank you for these beautiful words. Thank you for the life of Paul. I think um, after multiple weeks studying this book, I'm, I'm moved about what made him tick. And now as an old man, he gives us incredible wisdom. God, I, I pray that you would help us to live our lives well to measure the right things, to live our lives as an offering before you poured out. Lord, would we be conduits for the message, not just in what we speak, but in how we live. Lord, here's all we are, and we offer it to you. With that message of who you are, 
beat in our chests. And will we always be amazed over and over, year after year, decade after decade, at the fact that you came and that you love us and you're resurrected and you're living your life through us now. So I give a moment of invitation. If there's anybody here tonight and you'd say, it's time for me to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Take my hands off the steering wheel. I give it to him. My past, my present, my future. If that's you, just raise your hand and wave at me. Say, Nate, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus tonight. I need new life. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Both of you. You're his daughters. You're forgiven. Okay, right over here. Absolutely. Anybody else, if that's you? Okay. On my left. Beautiful. Hey, man, would you open your eyes, please? Hey, would you uh, give a hand to four different people that made a huge step? Hey, if you did raise your hand, uh, please, on your way out, go to the Welcome Center. There's a free Bible for you. I'd love for you to get in a rooted group. Um, Everybody else, if you're a Patriots fan, you're in a great minority. Uh, Everybody hates the Patriots around here. It's crazy. Um, So God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you need prayer, there's people right here that can pray for you.